Hi. So we promised last week in our intro to fall and our census conversation that we'd be focusing on some hot button topics that we've seen trending as of late. And representation is a huge one, especially with the recent release of the mostly Asian cast of Shang-Chi and the legend of the Ten Rings. And along with that, how people in the entertainment field can get diverse movies totally right or totally wrong. So Sarah, I want to ask you, do you remember the first movie or TV show that you saw yourself in or that you saw your kids in, if you can recall? Yeah, no, I can't. (laughs) (laughs) And but I think some of that has to do with the fact that I spent so many like summers in Japan and grew up like I've seen Japanese characters on TV, albeit in different languages, not in the US, that I never thought that that was different for me. Representation and seeing who I am would be more like the biracial people. And it wasn't representation on a screen so much as when I showed up at like Japanese Saturday school and found like the first other half part, you know, mixed race, Japanese and white person. And then I met you at college my freshman year. And like, there was this whole organization and I'm like, there are other people like me, like that feeling. I understand. I just, to this day, don't feel like I have seen that on TV in the same way. But what about you? Yeah, I see your point there. I think that for me growing up, separating out, you know, what I saw in Japan, I remember just loving Margaret Cho, right? Because she was an Asian woman who was going to speak her mind. And that was amazing. I mean, and there was no one out there like her, right? And then I remember going with my Asian club at, in high school to see the Joy Luck Club. And that was so formative for me because it was the first time I had not seen, like, obviously I wasn't seeing myself on the screen, but I was seeing the experiences and the cultures that I knew and that I lived with my other Asian friends and the principals up there on the screen. And there were not just Asian people there watching this movie, which was so amazing to me that other people would want to see this too. Like I, it was very eye-opening for me. That's interesting. Yeah. But so if you've heard what Sarah and I said, and you're sitting here thinking like that, this hasn't been an issue for you that you've sort of always seen yourself, or maybe you're not even conscious about the fact that everyone looks like you in TV and movies we've got someone who's going to break down some hard truths around the state of media, entertainment, and diversity. Yes, we do. Enter Kamala Avila-Salmon, head of inclusive content at Lionsgate, you know, the movie company. She's fantastic. And we'll let her introduce herself to you. But there is a lot for us to think about as consumers and as people in our own fields who might want to make change, you know, things to think about in order to make sure we're not being performative and missing the mark, but instead really digging deep and thinking holistically about changing the narrative. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism. We are your biracial hosts, Sarah and Misasha. And also, have we mentioned that we have a book coming out in October? If you want to help more white women uproot systemic racism and be part of our book launch team, drop us a line at hello at dearwhitewomen.com and we will send you all the details. 
My name is Kamala Avila Salmon, and I am so excited to be here. Thank you, Ade. I'm currently the head of inclusive content at Lionsgate Films, and it's a really exciting role that I feel like I've been working my whole life towards. So it's really incredibly gratifying to be here. I'm also a fellow podcaster. I have a podcast called From Woke to Work. The Anti-Racist Journey, where we kind of unpack what allyship and anti-racism looks like when it's focused on actions and not just sort of feelings. And then, yeah, what else? I'm a mom. I'm a wife. I live in L.A. I personally am super excited to hear about how you landed in your current role at Lionsgate, because I have been in roles where you've, you're kind of creating the role as you go along. So I would love to hear, you know, a little bit of backstory as to, you know, was that role around? Did you have to push for it? And how has that role changed and grown as you've been in it? Yeah, totally. So, you know, this was a role that, funny enough, I saw posted as a a listing on LinkedIn. But I think the real journey is a lot more complicated than that. So, you know, I'll kind of take myself to start. So I'm someone who came up in the entertainment industry and in tech as well, always on the marketing side. And I noticed as a marketer, like one, I was always one of very few people of color in the room, one of very few black people specifically and black women. And as I was marketing my shows, my movies, my television shows, whatever it was that I was touching, I always noticed that I took a different approach than the rest of my colleagues. I was constantly thinking about multicultural audiences. I was constantly thinking about angles for underrepresented audiences. I was constantly thinking about who are the vendors we're working with, the agencies we're employing, and just seeing the systems of exclusion that really power our business. And what I now call, and my colleagues have started parroting me, like just the industry like has a magnet towards white outcomes. And it was just so obvious to me. And, you know, as I got deeper into my career, especially when I got into the tech side, I was like, you know, I can't just continue going through our marketing campaigns and pretending that like these dynamics are not real, that these dynamics are not shaping the content that comes through, are not shaping the products we're putting out, that there aren't audiences we're not talking about and just building that more formally into my role. And I think one of the things that I really appreciate about tech is that you tend to have the room to whatever it is the role that you're hired for, you can start to really pull other things and interests and passions in. And especially at Facebook, I think I really honed that and like created a role for myself where I was able to kick off the first marketing inclusion team at Facebook, which was not multicultural marketing, but actually was reinventing the discipline of marketing to be more foundationally inclusive. When you think about how marketing is generally done, it centers a white leaning, quote unquote, general market audience. So marketers are sort of taught that we have marketing practices for the general market, and then maybe we will layer on some multicultural tactics and strategies to reach specific audiences of color. That's a completely bogus strategy because first of all, it assumes that the general market looks the way that it did in 1980 and 2020, and it does not. And so any campaign that you're building that doesn't center audiences of color is actually not a general market campaign especially if you're targeting it to youth where we're already about 50% racially diverse. So it was while I was in that role that I started to really think about like, you know, my first love was television, music, but especially like just TV and images and movies. And so, you know, I moved to LA about 10 years ago, specifically with the purpose of disrupting exclusion in the industry and creating space for people. And I really felt like 
as obsessed as everyone is with what's happening in front of the camera, what's happening behind the camera is what's powering that. And I don't even mean just directors and producers, I actually mean studio execs, network execs, the decision makers that actually decide whether to fund or not fund. And I was chatting with a mentor of mine and she was like, I think you should just write your career thesis. I was like, well, what is that? And she was like, oh, it's basically like, what is your professional epitaph? What's the thing that you want to be said about your career and your impact? And I wrote that out and I kid you not about a month later, I saw the Lionsgate post and it was like one for one, everything that I had written. And it's, you know, I'm generally not a like believer in the secret or the universe, but I do think that, you know, when you start to put your intentions out there, the right opportunities start to manifest. And so the role that I'm in is a newly created role. I'm the first person in the role. But, you know, to Lionsgate's credit, it was a role that they had been working on filling and envisioning even before what happened with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. And everyone started saying, oh, my God, I need someone on my team that works on inclusion. But for sure, did this accelerate it? Yes, absolutely. But I think I just realized as I was going through the interview process that all of the skills and experiences that I picked up along the way all kind of coalesced into exactly what they were looking for, thankfully. And I kind of feel like I'm finally in the job that I moved to LA for 10 years ago, back when it didn't exist and now it exists. So I'm just, it's really, really amazing to be like really working in your purpose, but it is hard as hell. So let's, any questions you guys have about the day-to-day, happy to. Well, yeah. I mean, there's so many questions that came to mind, you know, as you were speaking, you touched on a few things that I wanted to ask about. You said so many people, the layperson, when they picture inclusivity in media and in entertainment, they picture who are the people, the characters, the actors that are in front of the camera. What else goes into it besides the actors? Yeah. So I think that most people who don't work in the industry don't really understand the fullness of the machine behind it. So for those who are interested in a little bit of kind of like an understanding of the state of representation in our industry, especially just one slice of it, there's an amazing McKinsey research study that was done and shared um, in the last few months called The State of Black Representation in Media. And its headline was that Hollywood is leaving about $10 billion in revenue on the table by not bringing equity to the representation of Black Americans in entertainment commensurate with their representation in the population. And so when you look at that report, it really points to all of the different centers of power within Hollywood that actually fuel what you see on screen. So, you know, if we're talking about pushing representation forward, we can't just be talking about casting. And I would say this a lot in my marketing strategy conversations where, you know, an inclusive marketing campaign is not one that, you know, once the idea is baked, the agency is hired, the script is done, the shoot is set, we decide to cast like a person of color instead of the eight white characters. We were That's not inclusive, actually. That's casting. An inclusive marketing campaign starts foundationally inclusive from the start. I start by thinking about who's on the marketing team that's going to bring this project forward. And do I have a marketing team that actually looks like the audience I'm hoping to sell to? Then it's about who's the creative agency that I'm hiring and who's on their team. Do they have people on their team that can speak to all of the different 
audience cohorts that I need to speak to. Women, people of color, LGBTQIA people, people with disabilities, like, and what are their strategies? Because the answer, like spoiler alert for most marketing agencies, like most studios, if the question is, do they have all the people that they need with all the perspectives to reach the total general market? No, they do not. And so the following question should be, what are their strategies for changing that? What are they going to build into my campaign that will help me bring in those perspectives that I'm missing? Then when we start to think about who are we hiring to tell this story, we need to look at it two ways. One, who has traditionally been able to get access to opportunities to direct commercials? And spoiler alert, mostly white men with some white women. And then who is the audience that I'm actually trying to reach? In most cases, you're trying to reach at the very least representatively diverse audience. And in many cases, like in media and in a lot of sort of tech products where audiences of color tend to be trendsetters and trend makers, you're actually trying to reach an audience that skews multicultural. How are you doing that effectively when you don't have the people on your team to speak to them, when you don't have the agencies, when you haven't hired a director that can bring a perspective that is currently not on your team? And so it really is like all of those building blocks. So in Hollywood, you know, when we talk about the machine, you know, we can't just be talking about who's cast once the script is written. We have to be talking about who's the producer that brought this project in and the creative team that they've assembled around them. Who's the writer? Who's the director that we want to hire? We need to talk about the talent agencies and talent managers. You know, most studios get the bulk of their incoming content from relationships, either relationships that they have with talent agents and managers that are able to walk things in and or relationships that they have with producers, either through formal deals that they have with them or through just you know, relationship deals and sort of affinity of people they've worked with in the past. I think that if you are someone who is in a seat of power and is really thinking about, all right, you know, back in June, 2020, I was posting all of the things and saying, I'm really committed to racial justice. Like you need to be asking yourself in whatever industry you're in, what's my pipeline? How are the things coming into me? And as I think, as you start to look at that and unpack that, you will see why the content that we see looks the way that it does. I was doing some research as I started my role just to kind of get a sense of the state of the state. And when you look at the leadership teams of studios, agencies, networks, we are talking about at the C-level, over 90% white and like over 90% male. How can that ecosystem lead to truly inclusive content at the end without a ton of interruptions, disruptions, full upheaval. Like, And so those people who are in the C-level, they need to be obsessed with, like they should assume that they're missing perspectives because you can only have the perspective that you have in your own lived experience. There's nothing wrong with a white perspective. Just know that it is a white perspective. And I think that what we have so much in our culture and definitely in our industry is something that I call the presumed neutrality of whiteness. Because white people don't have to think in our culture about the fact that their experiences, their upbringing, their communities, their schools, their synagogues, their churches are white because white is the default. That is assumed to be some version of a neutral position that is a neutral experience. Everyone else is other. 
And so if I'm making a film that's centered on Black people, maybe I realize that if I'm not Black, I don't have the full perspective to tell that story. But there are a million projects in development in Hollywood and a million things that have been um, released in Hollywood where their solution to addressing representation was to continue hiring the same white male producers and say, hey, actually, this time, can you make it with Black people? Almost always, that's not going to be a very authentic film. Or you hit the nail on the head, because to me, that just seems like performative action versus what we're talking about with like true integrity, depth of thinking and alignment, you know, and what happens when you have films like that, that are, I think even Mulan, for example, like the live action Mulan. And I'm just like, Mm -hmm. how come all the Asian people have different accents? As an Asian person watching it, I'm like, that was a swing and a miss for me. Yeah. And you wind up getting a lot of people who live in that perceived white neutrality being like, but it was all Asian people. Hooray. That was a representative. You understand what I'm saying, right? Absolutely. I mean, I think it's one of those things where you're like, you feel sometimes as a personal color between a rock and a hard place, because, you know, on the one hand, of course, we want to celebrate strides in representation. Of course, we want to support actors and actresses and producers and writers of color who get a chance to do these things. But when it comes to the audience showing up and feeling represented, I constantly have to feel like I have to you know, remind my colleagues and myself that like, it is not our job as an industry to say, we did it. It is the audience's job to tell me if we did it. And so I can't be precious about the fact that, you know what, if I don't staff a project in an authentically diverse way, there is a high chance that we will put something out with great intentions that will be completely pilloried by its intended audience. And I think that is what needs to happen. That's where growth comes from. Because, you know, what I want people to see is that it's basically an occupational hazard to not have a diverse team. Because how great would it be for studios to have someone inside and not just someone, one person, a multitude of people inside that can say, hey, you know what, as we're building Milan, like as an Asian or Asian American person, like this is not it. Like I see where you're going, but like this is not going to get us the destination that we're looking for. And like actually having those people not only be there, but be empowered to speak as you're putting things together, why wouldn't you want to make sure that any sort of backlash, any sort of criticism of the project you're working on actually gets said to you before it comes out? So I feel like in many ways, my job is I'm not, I don't have a magic wand. I can't change every project that we're working on. There are some projects that, you know, I have to just let go, but it is my job to tell them what is problematic before we put it out so that When something comes out, no one can say, oh my gosh, I had no idea that you definitely did. And we made a calculated decision at that time that it was going to move forward for X or Y reason. But a lot of my work really is obsessed with like getting as early in the pipeline as possible so that it doesn't become a a discussion of like, oh my God, but we just spent a hundred million dollars and it's already shot. Are you saying that we can't release it? It's like, Yes, I went to business school. I understand how ROI works. Like, I'm not an idiot. So I understand that, like, that's a really bad time to have that conversation, right? Sunk cost is a real thing. And people want to see, like, can I recoup anything at all? 
right? So the best time to have that conversation is as early as possible. So I think that what's exciting for me is just seeing that, you know, at least, you know, at Lionsgate in terms of how they've set this role up, I really do feel like I have the buy-in from leadership to get upstream, to have the hard conversations early, 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 to connect with our filmmakers. Because to your point, you know, whether it's Mulan or even what happened with Washington Heights, which like, those are the things that people who like are bullish on representation in media, like we want it to work. We want it to be great. And it serves no one when those films don't perform. But the last person that I will ever blame that on is underrepresented audiences and audiences of color. They have a right to demand to be authentically represented and we need to step up to the table. I love all of this and especially appreciate you breaking down sort of the different parts of the industry because I think I grew up in LA and seeing the industry and it was a very, very white industry then. Not that, you know, it's shifted that much now. Would love to tell you that it's different. (laughs) Right, I know. But I think even growing up in LA and close to that, I still have a view of the industry in, you know, certain superficial ways, right? And when I think about representation as a whole, it's so important to think about all of those different parts, right, that lead into it. Because I think about how we talk about it in law, and it's a lot of the pipeline, and it's a lot of, do you reflect your clients, and how are you, and all the moving parts of each deal, right, or each case. So I want to talk about the day-to-day, too, because, you know, you said it's hard as hell, and just in hearing you you know, touch on some points about those uncomfortable conversations. Like, can you tell us more about that? Because I'm sure that has to be so challenging, but, you know, also such a big focus of your role. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, in terms of what the role was as initially stated and what it actually has turned out to be, I knew that it was going to be, it was wet clay that we were molding. And so, you know, there's kind of three areas that my team focuses on. Like we focus on the creative area where we partner with our creative execs and the creative team and really look at the stories that are coming in, um, help them to understand where there are opportunities for greater inclusion in a project, where there are, you know, inclusion misses or, you know, challenges, things that need to be fixed, where there is a need for greater diversity in this team or that team or this character, more depth, all of that. Then we also um, have a part of our team where we connect with the marketing and promotions team and publicity and really think about like, how are we bringing our films to market? How are we thinking about inclusion right from the beginning in terms of like, who's the audience we're going after? And are we really thinking about the diversity of that audience? What are the agencies that we are employing and who runs them? Who are the creative leaders of those agencies to ensure that we have all of that, you know, baked in and not just sort of, you know, oh, I happen to have a movie that has a Black-centered cast or an Asian-centered cast. Therefore, I need to hire all of the Black or Asian or Latinx consultants. It's like, not just on those films do you actually need those perspectives. You need those perspectives on every film that you're working on. And then, you know, finally, we try to really think about the business strategy piece and, you know, that's the real systems work. So that's like looking at like how we green light and what do we green light and what do we not green light? That's looking at like our creative pipeline and where do we get our projects from? And, you know, most studios have a very white male incoming content pipeline. And so 
that is what the content pipeline is delivering. And yes, there are more conversations about inclusion. So you are seeing more producers, including you know white and or male producers, trying to bring in things that are more diverse and inclusive. But there's always a risk that they're writing something that is not them. And you see the tropes and stereotypes tend to really come through there. And that's what sets you up for the trap of thinking that you're doing the work and then putting the thing out there and being told by the audience, you're absolutely not doing the work. And so, you know, trying to look at how we value content, how we green light, what we discuss, like all of like, and reimagining that there's such a tension in so many areas because there is a real tension between the industry needs to and wants to mitigate risk as much as possible. And so things that look like things that have come out before are privileged in the ecosystem, whether that is like producers that we've worked with before, directors we've hired before, films that have 10 what we call comps, which are basically comparable films, 10 comparable films that have come out in the past few years that tell us, oh, there's an audience for this. But then because of that, you get into this dynamic of what I call you know, tyranny of comps. Where it's like, unless if you are making something that does not look like 10 things that came before it, that thing that you're making is deemed risky. And I've spent a lot of time just trying to think about how do we untangle the idea that like inclusive projects are risky projects when actually inclusive projects have a better chance of reaching a diverse audience, but yet they are seemed as riskier largely because they are new. It requires hiring directors, producers, writers that don't have 10 studio like film credits because who's been getting studio feature jobs? It's like, we can't be blind to everything that happened, you know, before 2020 when everyone decided, all right, I think I might be done with racism now. Are we ready? It's like, no, it doesn't work that way. And so I think that we have to really, it's my job and my team's job to continually surface the unspoken dynamics, the unmet challenges, the embedded inequity. And then we have to decide on every project and as a film studio overall on a slate perspective, what are going to be the receipts that show our audiences, our stakeholders, our shareholders that all the things that we said in 2020 about what we intend to do differently are actually being done differently. Because if you're saying as an industry that things are going to be different, then there need to be receipts. And so even if the argument is that, well, I can't do it on every film, great, but we're going to need to see two or three where it's definitely been done. Or else if we said we were going to do it and we are still doing none of it, then then we're just talking about it. And so like that feeling of sort of so much energy being put into talking about addressing racial equity and so few actions being really put into actually dismantling systems was really the inspiration for why I started the podcast, because it's not just a corporate America thing. It's literally like corporate America is made up of people. And until individuals really understand the difference between hand wringing about diversity and inclusion and like feeling very concerned about it and actually doing different things that will drive more equitable outcomes. Like we'll be having this conversation forever. And at some point I'll like pass my podcast on to my son and tell him, All right, now you tell them. And it's like, he's only three would love to like make some progress. Absolutely. 
it made me think I wanted to ask, you know, what is your theory of change? Because I see it when you're talking about one industry, and I think it takes all of us living in our fields of influence, passion, like each have our role to play in our fields, right? But what are some of the things that you think are most impactful from your podcast, for example, where you focused on not just thinking and learning about racism, but let's do something about it? Yeah. You know, for me, the podcast and my theory of change really came from, you know, what I was seeing around me in 2020 coming out of, you know, all of the protests and the like seeming support for racial justice and what I was seeing, like, as it was coming through to me, either directly from friends or like in terms of posts that I was seeing. And what I saw was a tremendous focus on emotion. People were feeling bad, sad, mad. And then all of a sudden, like, they were anti-racist. And I was like, I don't think that that's actually how that works. And so, you know, as a marketer, I thought about it in a conversion funnel perspective. And in marketing, you learn about taking consumers from unaware of your product to aware of it, interested in it, considering it, and then finally purchasing it. And I feel like there's that exact same type of funnel. And so for me, it's like going from unaware of racial injustice to aware, which I think a lot of people have had moved into post George Floyd, not because what happened to George Floyd was like singular in any way, not because it was even remotely unique, but for whatever reason, we were all home. We were locked in our, you know, we had very limited other things. There were no sports. There were no new broadcast shows. There was nothing to distract you. People were like, wow, why didn't you guys say something? This racism thing looks real bad. It's like, well, we've been saying things, but now you're listening, but that's actually not the end of the journey, right? I think the next place a lot of people went was sympathy. Like they felt really sad about it. They're like, I feel so bad for you to empathy, which is like, oh my gosh, I can only imagine what it's like for you. How can I support you? And all of that is good, but like that can't be the end of the journey. Like a really important missing step for many people was, you know, maybe some people tried to take that empathy and immediately take action. The problem with that is that you're missing a crucial step of reflection. Like you need to actually go inward first and really think about why is it that I'd never noticed this before? Why is it that, you know, I hadn't already been incensed and moved to action? Why is it that George Floyd hit me differently than Eric Garner or Trayvon Martin or Michael Brown or Sandra Bland or Philando Castile or on and on and on and on and on? Like, why did nothing penetrate my bubble? And like, what does that say about my true commitment? Then I think you need to really look at sort of your own life and circumstances and upbringings and circles and really think about like, if your life looks more homogenous than you would like, well, why? You know, what are the dynamics that have created this insular bubble for you? And how do you sustain it? Because None of us is able to watch on the sidelines as like a white centered, white supremacist society takes shape. We all play a role in it. We all like are actors within it. So really going deep and thinking about, you know, one of the challenges that I posed to my listeners and to um, a lot of my friends who follow me on Facebook was, you know, for those of you who had parents who were in the US during the 50s and 60s when the civil rights movement was happening, ask your parents where were they during that time? Were they out protesting with the, you know, the African-Americans that were denied from Woolworths or like that, you know, where were they when like Ruby Bridges was like trying to integrate that school? Was their school integrated? 
what do their parents have to say about it? Like we have to have those conversations to really understand where we are and how we got here. And then I think you can start to go to like, all right, what actions do I need to take? So the first stage of action, in my opinion, is allyship. I want to stand shoulder to shoulder with people who are impacted by racism. I want to see something, say something. I want to really be an active force and like trying to push change. But for me, I think anti-racism takes it one step further. An anti-racist is not just sort of sitting shoulder to shoulder with me. And if they're in the room, I can hope that they will speak up, right? An anti-racist is someone who's like, I want to divest from this system overall. I want to actively not just interrupt it, but dismantle it. I am going to, in partnership with underrepresented and marginalized groups, I am going to work with them on strategies, and I'm going to figure out how I can use my access, my privilege, my opportunities to speak in rooms where people of color may be silenced, in rooms where LGBTQIA people may be silenced, in rooms where women, like whatever access of identity gives you more room to speak should be used to disrupt and interrupt. So in my line of work, you know, it's one thing to say, you know, we need to make sure that Kamala is there and she reads that script and that she gives us the feedback and all of that's important. But I think when you're taking it to an anti-racist level, now it's like you as the marketing lead, you as the creative and development person, you don't need me to tell you that it's an all white male team. Like you can know that on your own and you can start to have those conversations with your producing stakeholders, with the agents you work closely with and tell them like, by the way, I'm really not going to be buying a lot of this type of content. Like I'm actually critically like invested in making sure that we are bringing inclusive content forward. So I don't need Kamala to tell me that like, this is probably not the right thing to make. Like, I'm going to start to ask for what I want to see in the pipeline and then partner with the inclusive content team to figure out how we can make the best version of that thing. So that's the difference to me. I like that. I think, I mean, it's all about, we need to own it. Each, every single one of us needs to educate ourselves, needs to go through that process you talk about, like listen to people's stories, Yeah. realize that we have the power to learn enough to listen to our true instincts and gut feeling about like, this isn't right actually. And then I'm going to do something about it. And so I appreciate you sharing that. Thank you. Yeah. And I just want to let people know that like, it's not about perfection. Like I don't want people to feel like, oh my gosh, like, you know, I can never make a mistake again and I have to have all of the answers. Like that's not possible. But I think that the speediest growth is going to be when you out yourself as someone who is like, who's willing to be educated, who's willing to be corrected, who's willing to be challenged, you know, constantly, like we learn the fastest when we make mistakes and get told very quickly, like that wasn't it. And you need to figure out how to hear that feedback and not take it as like, see, there's no point. They can't be satisfied. Like, and we know as people of color, we hear that all the time. Like even in your example of Mulan, right? It's like, oh, well, see, we made the thing with all the Asian people in it and they still don't like it. So this, and it's like, no, that's not actually the lesson. The lesson is you didn't do what you endeavored to do. You've been provided feedback that you didn't do it. Like, how can you do it better the next time? On that note about Mulan, I did have a question about who the audience is. Because, you know, you said a few times and you talked about that report, the state of Black representation in media and the money that's left on the table. When we're making films, when we, the grand we, when you're making films Mm -hmm. with diversity in mind, because 
it just, I mean, it's art. It's amazing. It moves us. It teaches us all of these things. But do you see things like Mulan or Black Panther or any of these films that have Mm -hmm. like really lean into it as for the population they're representing? Or do you see it like to, it's a film showcasing this particular thing that is for everybody, Mm -hmm. right? Like that general population to take in. What's that audience that you're talking about? And how do you come through this process of making a film and what audience is in mind when that's being created? Yeah, it's a great question. So the way that I think about it is that there should be nothing about us without us. Like we should be centered in films that are meant to showcase and portray our experience. The best version of a of an inclusive film is one that feels deeply specifically for the audience that it centers and yet is able to bring everyone else in. I don't think we have to sacrifice specificity for a marginalized or underrepresented community for like broad universal commercial appeal. I think there's a lot of great examples of that. Like I think that Black Panther is actually a really great example of that, where if you are a member of the Black community and you watch that film, it is so for us, by us, in a way that just feels like just authentic And yet the themes at the heart of it, and I actually think the specificity often fuels universality, even though it feels like they are different, but like, you know, you can have such specificity baked in that like, it does become a lens through which other communities can see communities that they don't belong to and feel like enriched by that. But like at the end of the day, like when we're talking about universal themes, like humanity is a very universal experience. We live, we love, we laugh, we cry, we have family, we have fights, we all those things. And so those are actually universal experiences. And what will make a fresh story is when you take any of the various universal experiences that all humans share, love, grief, pain, joy, et cetera, and you center it in a very specific community and perspective that we haven't seen, that actually, we have a lot of data that shows that audiences want to not only like underrepresented audiences want to see themselves and many members of majority communities want to see other people. Media has always been a window into seeing people that are different than you. And so the joke that I make to my colleagues a lot is that I feel like I've seen every version of life event that can befall a white character. I've seen relationships start, relationships end, parents die, people get remarried, you know, slip and fall on the way to work. Like there was a game about like tag. I mean, there was a movie about tag, right? A group of like white men who had played tag, like literally. And so it's like, now I think we can say that like all the stories that can be told about white centered life have been told. So what is gonna make a story interesting is figuring out how are we telling a well-worn human and accessible story through a different POV. I think something like Girls Trip is a really great example of that. Where like, we've seen a lot of like, you know, not as many as we should because we still live in a very sort of male-centered gaze like industry, but we've seen a decent number of like, 
you know, groups of girls like going on trips and hijinks ensue. We actually hadn't seen that version, which for the black community being centered in the Essence Music Festival is like a very specific thing for the community where, where many people outside the black community don't even know that that festival exists. So for the black audience, they're like, oh, I know what that is. But for other audiences, it's like, I know what it's like to lose touch with your friends from college. And then you like reunite and like the dynamics are a little bit different. And like when you go to that reunion trip, like hilarity ensues. Obviously, like this is a heightened hilarity, but like that feels very relatable. And I think what they saw was that many, many audiences actually wanted to see that story and saw shades of either themselves or someone in their friendship group in one of those like four women. And so I do think it can be done. And I don't think that we have to sacrifice specificity for us in order to bring other people in. I love that, first of all, because Girls Trip was such a big movie in our own household. But, you know, I watch my kids, right, watch shows and For them, they love it when they see kids who look like them, right? Because the average white sitcom is not them. But I can see what you're saying when you talk about the themes that everyone relates to, right? That we can relate to as humans because they will watch the shows for the themes that are, you know, if it's Black kids, if it's Asian kids, if it's, I mean, they're watching a lot of kids shows, right? But if it's Latino kids, right? If it is, if there are kids who are kids, right, first, and the stories and all of that, they can relate to. They love it, obviously, when they are kids who look like them. But that is such a powerful thing. And I think something that we can't discount. So I think I really love that you brought that up, just the power in that. Yeah. And I mean, I think that like, you know, people who identify as white and are trying to, you know, figure out what they can do to drive change. I think they have to really confront the fact that audiences of color have always had to watch television shows and movies for themes, right? We've always needed to find a way to see a white character or a white family and picture ourselves in that world. We've always had to see like, okay, how is this me? Like I'm kind of Carrie too, or I'm kind of whatever it is. And like white audiences have generally not been challenged to look at characters that don't look like them and actually see themselves. And even that is like, that's part of the work that you need to do as a white identifying audience member you need to figure out how to put on the lenses that allow you to when you see, if you see a predominantly Asian cast or a predominantly Latinx cast or a predominantly Black cast, how to not put on the blinders and say like, oh, this is not for me. Maybe it is. Like that is part of the problem why, you know, content that centers, let's just use audiences of color for the moment, has been seen as niche because audiences of color watch white characters white audiences don't always watch characters of color. Until that changes, it feels like there is this false like business trade-off and it is creating a nicheness to stories that are just as universal. My story is just as universal as anyone else's. And we need to make sure that, you know, that is a conversation that we're having too. And so for people who are wondering like, what can allyship look like? like audit your viewing sources. Are you contributing to a nicheness around content that centers people of color because you're not a person of color? What are 
some of your favorite, you know, TV shows and films in that space. And I ask because Misasha and I've had this conversation around Blackish, watching the TV show and like, I can imagine the discomfort. I still remember turning it on. And my family initially, who I'm married to a white Canadian guy, my kids present as white, were very mindful about what we put on TV. But watching Blackish that first time, they were like, they had feelings. It stirred up a little thought for them, right? And they're like, is this for us? So for me, that is my quintessential first experience show of like, this is what it must feel like. This is just like a fraction of what it must feel like to be on the flip side. And so- I would love to know what other, you know, we talked about some of the major films so far, but if you had a laundry list off the top of your head, what would be some of the things you'd say people, you'd recommend people sit with? Yeah, there's so many because I'm a big TV junkie, especially and watch a lot of movies too. So I'll start with movies just because that's what I've been thinking about a lot, like you know, in my current job. And I think a film like Get Out is just masterful. Like I kind of, I want to say too, that like there's a difference between films that are about racism and that are films or TV shows that are actually about race and racism versus films that just are TV shows that just further representation by centering and including like people of color. So a lot of times, you know, one of the misnomers, even in my work is people think that when I say inclusive film, I mean like a message movie and like, I don't, that is a sub genre of like things that can be inclusive, can be things that intentionally are trying to teach you some kind of message or like, it's like a history, like focused, but like a contemporary comedy can be an inclusive film. It should be right. An inclusive film is just a film that includes underrepresented audiences in meaningful ways, ideally with like underrepresented people as part of the creative team. That's it. Right. So Black Panther is an inclusive film. Crazy Rich Asians is an inclusive film. Girls Trip It is an inclusive film. Real Women Have Curves is an inc- like it doesn't have to mean that like it has like a social agenda, like something like Get Out definitely does. But it's just so brilliant and masterful in how it does it. I think it's a case study and like how you can like, you know, have your popcorn and your broccoli like at the same time and like really be left with like thinking you're like, oh, okay, I was scared, but now I'm like, I'm wondering if I'm like scared of myself. Is it me? Am I that person? And that's what we need. You know, other films in that vein, I would say are like a Judas and the Black Messiah or a Fruitvale Station, or even some of the early episodes of the Amazon show Them. Like there's a bunch that are like where people are, creators are really trying to use popular media and commercial genres to tell stories that are meant specifically to challenge you to make you think about things differently. I think a show like Blackish is such a great like Trojan horse actually, because it is all wrapped in comedy, but Kenya Barris is telling you things about the black experience. And I think more and more is realizing that like he is speaking to a predominantly non-black audience and therefore like, you know, really putting things in for them that are meant to make them squirm a little bit while laughing, which is great and awesome. I think when it just comes to other things that just like further representation in a really beautiful way, Jane the Virgin is probably one of my favorite shows in the last like, you know, five or so years. It was a show on CW with Gina Rodriguez and it's just like, it's so specific and yet so broad at the same time. And I think that it is the kind of show that should have had a much broader audience. But I, you know, a lot of times what happens is, you know, for many white audience members, when they see a show that doesn't include 
or really center white characters, it goes into the box of like, not for me. And I think that like, that's a show that should be like pulled out of that box and put in your like for everybody box. Cause it's just, it's so good and so fun. And see, so, yeah, Blackish is definitely on the list. There's a show on stars called Run the World. That's really great. And such as like four, like, you know, upwardly mobile professional black women that I just think is super funny and cool. And so I think, you know, in general, I would encourage people to really audit their media sources, both news and entertainment, and really think about like, who is creating the content that you're watching and who is centered in it. Because if you're serious about doing the work, you have to be taking in a very broad spectrum of media in order to really start to get closer to really understanding all the different POVs that live outside of yourself. So one thing that I'm excited to check out that I haven't checked out yet is one, I'm just a big CW and like young adult teen show person. Like I watched Dawson's Creek and Vampire Diaries is one of my favorite shows ever and like all of that. So like next on my list in that vein is definitely the Kung Fu series on CW. I really want to check that out. Ooh, I'm curious how they do with that, right? Because sometimes going back to caricature, I have no idea about the show other than the fact that it's called Kung Fu, but you can overplay. And so I'm curious. A thousand percent. I mean, I think it's really interesting. Like, you know, I've been talking about just sort of like young adult shows that are trying to f- it be intentional about representation. You know, you have The Return of Gossip Girl, which since I watched the first version, I'm watching this one now. And it's very clear that like part of their agenda was like, oh, you know, we, we really created an entirely white world the last time and now we want to do it like very differently, but it needs to be authentic. And I think just as an audience member, I have questions about the authenticity, not because characters of color can't be centered in shows that are about wealthy New Yorkers. There's tons of wealthy New Yorkers that are characters of color. But sometimes when you write a script, especially if you are writing from a white centered lens, if you get to the decision point where you decide I'm going to cast a person of color here, you need to really go back to the source material. You need to go back to the script and actually say, does everything in this make sense? Now that I've decided I'm going to center an Asian character or a Latinx character or a black character, it may, there may be things that don't have to change at all. There may be things that have to change massively. That doesn't mean don't do the casting. It just means also go back and look at the writing and see like, does it make sense? Speaking of the casting, I had a question about that. You know, I feel like ages ago in Breakfast and Tiffany's, you had people like playing roles that they shouldn't have been playing. Can you just call it out just for people who are like, I wonder what she's talking about? Yeah, there was an Asian character that was played by a very not Asian person and over just absolutely horrific stereotypes and fully caricatured and just incredibly offensive. Yes. And yet that was not what people talk about when they talk about that movie. No, they don't talk about that. But someone recommended there's a new show called, or maybe it's not new, I don't know, Yellowstone. And it talks about Montana and the tension between uh, white ranchers and the Native American population in that area. And we were watching and my husband was like, do you think that they're all Native Americans being cast? And my gut was, Mm. I would assume at this stage post-2020, if this was when it was made, like, I'm really hoping that people are casting. If you're playing a Native American, you are finding Native Americans or, you know, that sort of thing. But how we know that people have not 
found the right match and have miscast or crosscast or changed the identities of characters as they go. Where is Hollywood in that now? Don't know that I can say where everybody in Hollywood is. I can say that, you know, there are still far too many unforced errors in this arena. There are still far too many times, even in projects that I see, where I'm like, that Latinx person that we cast is playing an Italian character. Like, that's different. That's not the same. And so, like, if we've cast a Latinx character, like, an actor, like, why aren't we changing the part in the film and bringing out, you know, the Latinx identity? You know, we see Italian happens to be one of the heritages that we see a ton of in Hollywood. And so what an amazing opportunity to like do something different. And so I think that, you know, this is an especially active conversation when it comes to the LGBTQIA community. I was just going to ask. And the people with disabilities, because, you know, you have to kind of understand like the dynamics within Hollywood. Again, it goes back to the systems. So right now I would say the incentives for an actor to come out as queer are very low, like, because once you come out as a lesbian or gay or bisexual actor, a lot of times that does shift how Hollywood sees you and they will stop sending you parts for straight characters, right? And so what that means is that there's an incentive to not come out and so that you can attract the broadest array of parts possible. And so when a studio goes and we have a script that has an LGBTQIA character and especially like lesbian, gay, or bisexual, I'm for sure having those conversations about, can we cast an out actor for this role? Because when you don't, you are adding to that incentive structure. We're basically, the reason why we don't have a wide set of out actors to choose from is because this the incentives are not right. Like there may be lots of other things, obviously I'm simplifying, like not everyone feels like they need to be out and that's totally fine. Not everyone feels comfortable, all of those things. But we also have to recognize that like we've created an incentive structure where we don't have the pipeline. We don't have a lot of tier A superstar like actors that are also out. And so that means that like for the studio execs, they're like, well, I want to cast the biggest star that I can in this role in order to ensure that it's going to have audience and to make the movie. But every time we do that, we make it harder to get more people. And so, you know, I was chatting with someone from GLAAD, which is the advocacy group within um, Hollywood for the LGBTQIA community. And, you know, when it comes to trans characters, like the line is very clear now. Everyone's like, you do not cast a cis actor to play a trans role. That is done. But when it comes to gay characters, lesbian characters, bisexual characters, what do we do in this period? And, you know, the person I spoke to was saying that he feels like we are heading to the same place where more and more actors that identify as lesbian, gay, or bisexual want to be the ones to play those characters because it also creates more opportunity for them. It's simple math. It's like if a straight actor has access to all the straight parts and all the queer parts and a queer actor only has access to queer parts and they don't even have a leg up on that lane either. They're competing with straight actors for it. It's just like you have one group getting twice the roles and one group getting access to half the roles and only getting a quarter of the role. It's just like, it doesn't make sense. I think similarly for disabilities, same conversation where more and more 
rightly so, I think pressure is coming from the community to create opportunities for actors with disabilities. And so if Hollywood wants to tell, it's like once every 20 stories, they want to tell a meaningful story about a person with a disability. Already, that's such a low percentage of the out products that we're making. Like we should center actors with disabilities in those films. And we should also look at films that have nothing to do with disability and think about the fact that one in four people in America identify as a person with a disability. There should be a role for that person in for actors from that community in every single film. It's only in Hollywood is like, are you living in a metropolitan city in a film or in a TV show where like everybody's white, like everyone is like cis, everybody's straight and has a husband or a wife. Everyone is like able-bodied, like that's not actually America, but that's what we see as normal. And so you have to just chip, 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 chip away. The chipping gives me hope, though, that, you know, that it's slow. I know it's very slow and it's very hard, but that there are people like you there with that little chisel, like sometimes a giant hammer, but sometimes a small chisel, you know, so if someone's listening to this and they're like, this is I want to disrupt the system. Like I want to get in there. I want to do the things in like a professional sphere as well, like what would you tell those people, assuming, you know, they've done that internal work, they've identified, you know, and now they're looking for how to do that, how to change systems? I think, you know, I would say the easiest part of the equation is sort of how are you preparing yourself for the opportunity? And the hardest part of the conversation is like, how are you going to find the opportunity? And I think people put most of their emphasis on the second half and not enough on the first half. So in whatever role you are currently in now, how are you actively like interrupting and disrupting the systems within your workplace and bringing diversity, equity, and inclusion to the forefront of those spaces. So whether your discipline is marketing, it's creative development, it's sales and distribution, it's, you know, whatever product development, whatever it is, like for sure, there is work that needs to be done in your functional discipline to create more opportunity for more inclusive perspectives to be heard and for more inclusive strategy to be built. Do that first. The second thing I would say is just start to share with your network, your sponsors, your mentors, your leaders, your friends, like this is the work I want to move towards. Here's what I'm already doing in my area. And like, I want to do it in this area and just really start aggressively like networking, but networking with intention. I have found that people really respond to both passion and clarity of vision. That's what I've demonstrated, you know, kind of coming up in my career, even when I was an assistant, you know, starting way back when, when I was an assistant in the music business, I always had a good sense of like what I was trying to do. And I could always point to something that I was doing in the present that was like aligned with what that is. And then, you know, beyond that, it's just sort of like, you know, figuring out is that, is it a role that you can create at your company and figuring out who would I need to sell that to in order to do that? Or as well as, of course, scouring LinkedIn and all the places where job listings are. But like, you need to really be able to tell the story in the present in order to get that opportunity for the future. And one last question for the consumer side. It's sort of a twofold question, but where are you on the hope scale of things changing, right? Like in your sphere of media and film, 
Are you hopeful for quick change so that by the time your three-year-old comes up and is, you know, at your stage that we will see significant change? And to support that, what as consumers can we do to most affect what comes through your pipeline and support this vision you have? What a great question. I love both sides of that. So on the first half, how hopeful am I? Definitely depends on the day. So I've had moments in this role of like extreme hope. And those are the moments when like we are able to have conversations and we are able to make different decisions. And we see the value of underrepresented directors, producers, writers, actors. And, you know, we have full leadership buy-in and it feels like things are going in the right direction. And then I have days of like, you know, less hope where I'm like, yes, and yet we still like this white male outcome still occurred on this project. And it's just like, it's back and forth. And so a lot of like, a little bit to the prior question, anyone that wants to do this work needs to come in knowing that like it is a roller coaster and it's probably the most emotionally taxing work you'll ever do because this is systems work. So there will be quick wins that you can have and there will be small glimmers of hope and you got to celebrate every one of those as opposed to saying, I will withhold celebrating until our slate look, it's like, then I will never celebrate right? I have to celebrate all the conversations in between that are a win. And then when it comes to sort of what can consumers do, like, again, I'll just really say like, you know, Hollywood is a business and it responds to consumer engagement and activity. And so if we're talking about a desire for more representation, we actually have to show up when that is made. And like, there is a real tension, which I totally understand between like, I don't want to feel like I am required to consume things that I think are poorly executed just because they have people of color in it. And it's like, that is a real tension that I haven't even fully solved for myself, but we have to know that like every single one of those offerings are measured as a litmus test for something else that is in the pipeline. And so what are we going to do with that? And then, so I actually lay a lot of the, there's a lot of opportunity for those that don't identify as people of color and identify as people who aspire to be allies and anti-racist and all of that. Diversify your media engagement, diversify your media spend, diversify your, you know, what you're paying attention to, what you're writing about. And I think all of us have some area of influence, some space, whether it's small or large, where we have influence and start to advocate for the thing that doesn't look like you start to advocate for the new show or the sitcom or the drama or the film coming up and talk to your friends and your community and your colleagues or whatever about like how excited you are about that thing. Because I do think those little ripples can help, but it requires people to be really intentional, even in their entertainment choices. That doesn't mean watch things that you don't enjoy, but it means really like have a layer of intentionality to what you're consuming, knowing that on the other side, there are people who are tracking everything that is consumed and deciding whether or not there is an audience for that. And there's, and it's not fair because, you know, a white movie fails every single weekend and there's no think pieces about why, right? A white centered television show is canceled all the time and there's no think piece about, oh man, does that mean we're out of the like, white male sitcom business. We can't make any more of those, but you know, how many think pieces have you read about like, 
you know, what people hoped Washington Heights would do and what it actually would do and what it means for the future of Latinx cinema. And it's like, it's insanely frustrating, yet that happens. And so we have to figure out how we're going to use our agency. Thank you for that. I really appreciate that perspective because we always say it's all about, it's not just the big structural things. They are so impacted by the choices each one of us make every single day to speak up, use our money, you know, consume certain things intentionally and reflect on, on what we value. So thank you so much. You're welcome. I hope that was helpful. I feel like there's, we could probably talk for another three hours because there's so much. I think that's probably true. <laughs> there's so much to get into, but thank you guys so much for having me. Absolutely. Is there any place that you want people to come find you and listen and? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I would love that. So um, if you haven't checked out my podcast, again, it's called From Woke to Work, The Anti-Racist Journey, and it is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen. And then, yeah, follow me and message me and engage with me on Instagram at TheRealKAS1 or find me on LinkedIn or any of the other places that I'm at, but I'm mostly at the real KS1 on Instagram. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. You're still here learning how to uproot systemic racism one conversation at a time. Our fresh news. We have a brand new book that's available for pre-order. So find us on bookshop.org at Dear White Women and order. And then make sure you follow the Dear White Women podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts so you can keep getting the newest episodes each Wednesday. And don't forget to rate and review us as you share our show with your friends. Follow us on Instagram at Dear White Women Podcast and Twitter at DWW Podcast. And if you love us, support our Patreon or look for ways you can bring us into your place of employment or circle of influence for a talk or ask us about our webinars and consulting work. Thanks for being here. <laughs>